Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Exodus 20, verses 2 through 3. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the, the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Then this is the word of God. You may be seated. We are starting a new series today, a series I've been wanting to do for quite a long time. It's on the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are also known as the Decalogue, which is Greek for ten words or ten sayings. The Ten Commandments themselves are somewhat controversial. They have been removed from state buildings, from courthouses. Many churches don't think we need to bother with them either. That was the Old Testament. We are are New Testament believers. About five or six of the commandments are universally agreed upon. Four of them are denounced by atheists. And even some people who call themselves Christians denounce them. And one is completely ignored. Once again, I've been wanting to do this series on the Big Ten for quite some time. Because when you understand them in a New Testament sense, when you understand them in the light of all of the scripture, you see the very heart of God. You see the very heart of God and you understand freedom in a new way. 
when you understand them in a New Testament, in the proper context, in the context of all Scripture, you see God clearer. Each one says something about the very nature and character of our Lord and God. Because of a mistaken view of the law, many fear and reject it. But the psalmist writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Psalm 1, verse 2 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates both day and night. How do you delight in the law? You know, when I was learning to drive, which was much later than most people, um, I had a book called The Law of the Road. I bet a lot of people had this. I did not delight in that law. In fact, it seemed somewhat confusing at times. I had, I probably shouldn't say this because some of you probably get nervous when you see me driving out, but I failed the test twice. So I did not delight in the law of the, ro- law of the road, but I do delight in the law of the Lord. I also, I echo the statement of, in Psalms that I, my delight is in the law of the Lord. And in Psalm 19, that I understand that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. You know, a friend of mine who was in youth ministry with uh, Youth for Christ did this thing. He went over to the local mall and he asked uh, the teenagers he found there, he asked them, do you know 10 beer names, like beer company names or whatever? And like all of them rattled off 10 real quick. I think some of them cheated because they included light beer in there as well. And that's just cheating. Anyway, um, they rattled off 10 really easy. Then he asked them, what about the 10 commandments? All of them knew some, none of them knew all, and most of them made up commandments in there like double parking or be nice to each other or something like that. He then proceeded to to witness to them, which I thought was very interesting. Many can't list all 10, but all know this. No matter if you say there's no such thing as sin, you believe everything is relative. Sin was just created on the behalf of religion to control the masses Everybody knows this. After something heinous goes on, everybody says something's gone wrong. Something's gone wrong. We see in horror on our TV set when we see things like New, um, Newtown, Connecticut, and we see something is not where it should be. I saw a news story this week from California. The, the um, California. This 16-year-old was driving. He sees a woman using a stroller with her infant son and he swerves to hit them both. He unfortunately did hit them. He did not cause any life-threatening injury, but they were hurt bad. And this young man only got, even though it was not his first, but his third offense, he only got five months in juvenile camp. People see that, and even the people who say, there's no such thing as sin, it's all relative, do what you want, say something has gone wrong. Biblically, historically, every way imaginable, we see that as sin. It's because God has written his law on our hearts. Romans 2.15 says, They show that the requirement of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, at other times even defending them. That there is a law of God written on the hearts of mankind. That nobody, when they sit before God, say, I I never did anything wrong, because even the law they make for themselves, they cannot keep. The law of the God, though, tells us in in no uncertain terms that we are lawbreakers and are sinners in need of a Savior. Hebrews 10, 16 says, This is my covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. God's law in the New Testament 
So why go over the Ten Commandments at all? Isn't that Old Testament? Shouldn't we, as Andy Stanley says, unhitch ourselves um, from the Old Testament? I'm just going to briefly address this because, you know, something Jesus deals with this himself. And it's crazy that a minister would say it. Even somebody as well-respected as Andy Stanley. But Jesus believed in the law of God. He says that heaven and earth will pass away before even one dot or tittle will be erased from God's law. Furthermore, he says he is, he is not there to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. Let me just say this. Jesus fulfilling the law does not make the law less. It makes the law more. It makes it more glorious. It makes it more meaningful. For the believer, the law becomes the delight of their heart, and they see the, perfect, the perfection in God's law, and it revives their soul. Jesus Christ is the other half of the law. The law tells you you are a sinner. He tells you he is a sinner's savior. People will say, see, in the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call them the synoptic gospels because they have parallel accounts. And there's this one account of a person going to Jesus, um, a lawyer, and he asks Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus tells him two commandments. He says, um, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength. And he says, the second is like it. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Because of this, many people say, well, that means in the New Testament, those are the only two laws. You had 300 whatever in the Old Testament, or 10 in the Old Testament, if we just look at the Ten Commandments, and only two in the New Testament. So we're New Testament believers. We only have two laws. Here's the problem with that. Jesus wasn't making that up on the spot. He was quoting from the Old Testament. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength comes from Deuteronomy shortly after the Ten Commandments. It is something Israelites, um, people who are observant Jews today, they call the Shema. Because the way they pronounce it in Hebrew, the Shema Yisrael. I thought briefly today, in fact, they sing it as they're called a prayer. I thought about learning it to sing it for you guys today. But I figured that would be offensive probably to people who are Jewish and then also for your own ears. So I decided just to tell you about it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. And then Jesus said the second is like it. Now you would think, man, this one has to be a New Testament law. Not the Old Testament God who's always angry and punishing people. Why would he say, love your neighbor as yourself? That's just Jesus, right? Jesus is quoting from Leviticus chapter 19. You know the book of the Bible everybody lies about when they do their one-year Bible reading plans? It's from Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. So here's the thing. We know the two most important commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. Here's the question. How do you do those things? Do you just do it by saying over and over to yourself like a mantra, I love my neighbor, I love God. I love God, I love my neighbor. I love God, I love your neighbor. If you are doing this, you know what it looks like? It looks like obeying the Ten Commandments. The first four are how to love God. The last six are how to love your neighbor. One thing we skip over when it comes to the law of God, when it comes to the Ten Commandments, is the preamble. We have a preamble of the United States Constitution. A preamble gives you the justification for what you are doing. Many of you probably learned the preamble in high school. I did. I don't know it by heart now. I mean, I, I do know the, uh, in order to, more, uh, to um, form a more perfect 
uh, union, we do ordain and establish this constitution of the United States. Um, but we have the justification, we hold these truths to be self-evident. It's from these self-evident truths that all men are created equal by their creator, and then everything flows from that. Here's where everything in the Ten Commandments flows from. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. If you skip to you shall, you don't understand the justification. It just looks like a list of rules. I am the Lord, your God. Relationship. I have relationship with you. A covenant relationship with you. That is why you shall. That is why you shall. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery, out of the house of slavery. This is happening after the exodus, after they have left Egypt. It is not a condition for freedom. It is how a free people should live. And if you do not live according to these principles, you will go back into slavery of your own heart. This is how a free people stay free. This is how a free people are to live. And even as New Testament believers, when we reject God's law, we put ourselves back into slavery. It is why Paul so adamantly in Galatians says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened by another yoke of slavery. He says, I am astonished at you that you began with freedom. You're going back to slavery. Alistair Begg, Pastor Alistair Begg, when preaching on the Ten Commandments, had some very important things that we need to keep in mind when speaking of them. These are, not, these are not direct quotes. They're more merely paraphrases um, uh, of what he pointed out. And sorry, I'm not going to do it in his uh, Scottish accent or Irish accent. I'm not sure which. I could try. Everything turns Irish once I try anyway. Here's one. The Ten Commandments are not a ladder to reach God. The Ten Commandments are not a ladder to reach God. You ask an average person, how do you get to heaven? Many people will say, well, do your best to follow the commandments. Jesus, in our reading today, blows this idea out of the water, water because he says it is impossible. Two, it is a mirror. What the Ten Commandments are, in fact, are a mirror. They reveal who you actually are. There is a short story, a novella from Oscar Wilde called The Picture of Dorian Gray. Many people call it the portrait of Dorian Gray. It's, it's, it's the picture of Dorian Gray. Dorian Gray is very handsome. He seems just charismatic and wonderful. He, he doesn't age. He doesn't get blemishes. It turns out all of his sins, all of the age, all of the pox and all of that are on this picture he has back home. The Ten Commandments are that picture for us. No wonder people want to do away with the Ten Commandments. No wonder people want to do away with this mirror that God puts in front of our faith. But Paul said it is our schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. The Ten Commandments won't save, but they lead us to Christ. It is restraint for the unbeliever. For the unbeliever, the Ten Commandments act as a restraint on evil. A nation who values the Ten Commandments will prosper. The nation that despises them will create for themselves a hell on earth. They are freedom for the believer. Number four, they are freedom for the believer. For the one whose sins are not counted against them, who have put on, their sins have been put on Christ on the cross, the law is now to be lived as a free person and enjoy and thanksgiving. 
The Ten Commandments were not given to the Jews while they were in Egypt as a condition for freedom. They were freedom for a free people. If only they would walk out of slavery. They are given the commandments as instructions on how to live as a free people. The Spirit for us was not given as a condition of salvation, but is given as we come to the Lord. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Everyone who, every, every one of the commands reveals to us the character and nature of God. When we get to you shall not lie, we know that is because it is impossible for God to lie. The first commandment is to have no other gods before him. So what does this reveal about our God? Why is our God a jealous God? Why, what we see in the gospel that we read today, in the gospel reading today, is we see one, who is good enough. Two, something is missing. And three, who can be saved? Let's start with our scripture. We're in, we're in Mark chapter 10, verses 17. Um, starting this first point here on good enough, 17 and 18. We have here, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You will notice that this man is called the rich young ruler. And we, we piece that together from the synoptic gospels telling of this story. Some say he's rich, some say he's young, some say he's a ruler. And one thing that's very interesting about this in his favor is that he runs towards Jesus and kneels down. This is an incredible display of humility. People of status didn't run in those days. Everybody wore tunics. In order to run, you had to gird your loins, which basically means you roll it up and it looks like a big diaper, which is really silly. And people of distinguished um, status in their culture, they didn't run, but this man runs and he kneels before Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In the movie The Magnificent Seven, Steve McQueen's character shares a short story after being told about all the troubles and unknowns that they had coming. He quips that the situation reminded him of a fellow back home who fell off a 10-story building. Chris, play, played by Yul Brenner, intrigued by the comment, asks him, well, what about this fellow? Steve McQueen's character says, well, the funny thing is, people on each floor could hear him as he fell down, saying, so far, so good. So far, so good. Many people, when they think of eternity, they only think of this life, and they think, so far, so good. I must be okay, or at least I don't know, but perhaps, maybe, possibly, my good deeds will outweigh the bad, and God will accept me into his heaven the guy who approaches Jesus, he doesn't want to guess. He wants to know for certain, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he's already revealed to Jesus why he doesn't have eternal life. He is a breaker of the first four commandments. Actually, this, this story of Jesus' life could have been for all four, but I decided on this one because that's the principal thing that he is breaking. He is an idolater. He is serving other gods. Let's go back to this guy. He is a rich young ruler. This story is repeated in the two other gospel accounts. We call him the rich young ruler because we piece together all three for that description. On the surface, this man has everything put together. He's moral. He is in the middle of God's blessing. And he is young. You know, that's an interesting thing. It's almost like this story is included and his youth is included like for us. 
See, they didn't worship youth like we do, but we worship youth. We have a tendency of just throwing away people who have such a wealth of knowledge and wisdom in our society. This is almost like for us, because this person, you don't mess with them. People step out of their way to try to get favor of rich young rulers today. You ever see, I mean, some of these people on Instagram, TikTok, and everything, nobody says, you know something, that's kind of stupid. No, they, 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 they line up to praise and worship these people. You know, we worship youth in our culture. He seems righteous, but what we learn and what he learns is that he does not love God. He has many other gods besides the Lord. That very first commandment, you know, the question, why is God jealous? Why does the Ten Commandments start with this one? Reading from Mark Rooker's book on the Ten Commandments, the Hebrew formula for do not have means to keep or refrain from having a relationship with. The positive statement of you shall have was a common idiom for the establishment of a marriage. The positive statement later became the formulaic expression for the unique covenant relationship between God and Israel as the terminology for marriage became the classic terminology for Israel's covenant relationship with God. The most intimate of all human relationships on the human plane became the analogy for God's intimate relationship with his people. This commandment implies that there may be no third party in a person's relationship with God, just as there may be no third party intruding on the relationship of a marriage. Why is God a jealous God? Because when we come to him, we are married to him as his bride. And to have anything else intrude in any way, shape, or form would be as just as heinous as a third party intruding on a marriage. We've been in our, in our morning Bible studies, we've been going over Sunday morning Bible studies, we've been going over Hosea. Hosea is a brief glimpse, is a unique glimpse on how God feels really about idolatry. He tells his prophet, go marry a prostitute because I want the people of Israel to know what it's like for me to love them. And we see the incredible sorrow of God, the anger of God, because he is not some weak, frail person who's just glad to be part of the party. No, he is a jealous God because he has bought you with his own blood out of slavery. God's character is good. This rich young ruler addresses Jesus as good teacher. Jesus, Jesus asks him why he does this. Why does he call him good? He doesn't know Jesus. Only God alone is good. Does he know he's coming from God? Does he know Jesus is God? He doesn't. He just uses it. Like how we use the word good. Like That's a good guy. He's a good fella. You know, he's, one, he, he's, one of, he's one of us. But here's Jesus repeating, only God alone is good. Why is God so jealous? Because he alone is good. And to worship anything else is to worship something by its very nature, not good, but evil. If God were to let you worship anything else, that would be evil. His very nature demands worship, and everything worships him too. Everything in all of the universe, the stars, the, the, the stars, the grass, the rocks, all of them shout together metaphorically praise and glory to God, except men and women who say no. 
Like the man, we try to stand on our own righteousness. Another way of asking this question is, Jesus, how good is good enough? Because that's what he wants to know, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? What, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? He believes he can be righteous on his own. Jesus, how good is good enough? Jesus is already answering his question. Not you, not me, not anybody. Only God alone is good. Our idea of goodness is so warped as theirs was. I remember even speaking with another pastor about issues with their kid, and they were telling me, well, he's a good boy, and I'm like, I guess he's the only one since God alone is good. Is that where we're getting at here? I'm not, I'm not making any special derogatory statement, but here's the thing. If you're just like, okay, good boy, no wonder they fall into all kinds of issues. Only God alone is good. This is echoed throughout the scripture. No one does good, no, not one. This man is an idolater, and he doesn't even know it. In Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, when the ghost of Christmas past brings Scrooge to his one-time fiancé to the very end of their relationship, this is what she says. See, he had been an idolater in their relationship, and he didn't even know it. She tells him, speaking of the ending of their relationship, that it matters to him, to you, very little. Another idol has displaced me. And if it can cheer and comfort you in, in the time to come, as I would have tried to do, I have no cause to grief. What idol has displaced you, he rejoined. She replies, a golden one. There is something missing. There is something missing. Verses 19 through 23. This is in verses 18, especially in verse 19, Jesus already has this man's number. Has Jesus ever had your number? I remember when Jesus had my number. Many of you know my testimony when God, when the Holy Spirit spoke to me when I was saying the Lord's Prayer, and I came to the point where I said, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And the Holy Spirit stopped me and revealed to me my own sin. And I had all the excuses in the world which don't fly with the Holy Spirit because he has my number. And he's not impressed by all the ways we try to get out of obedience. His law then crushes us so that we can see his grace and mercy so clearly to understand it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. He knows exactly why this man doesn't have eternal life and what he needs to have treasure to have treasure in heaven. Jesus isn't playing around either. I remember, once again, I remember when Jesus had my number. I've told you my testimony, how God used his law to crush me so that I could see the amazing kindness of God to save me. See, I didn't value the love of God before I understood his law, and neither does anybody else. Oh, God loves you. Great, I love me too. I guess we have something in common. But when you understand that when I stand before God, if God was just, he should crush me. But instead, he sends his son to be crushed in my place. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. Briefly, I want, to, I want you to notice that Jesus is using treasure in heaven, eternal life, and kingdom of God as synonyms. These are all talking about the same thing, of eternal life with Jesus of heaven. When Jesus asks him about the commandments, do you notice that he, doesn't, that he only includes six and he's leaving out the other four? Do you remember how at the beginning I said how the Ten Commandments tells us how to keep the greatest two? Jesus leaves out the four to show us 
show us, um, Jesus leaves out the four that show us how to love God because that is what's missing in this guy's life. He doesn't love God. He loves himself and everything he does is about him. If Jesus had asked him, if he said the other four, he would have said the same thing. I've kept these since I was a youth. No, he hasn't. And Jesus proves it by his next question. But if you want to be perfect, sell everything you have and give your money to the poor and then come follow me. This is what is missing and Jesus proves it. When asking people about their testimony, there's a few things I look for. Because everybody, everybody kind of has a pat answer that they can give you because they want you off their back. I remember with one young man, me and my wife, we were talking with him. We asked him, well, what's your story with God? And he kind of rattled off a bunch of kind of formulaic thing. You know, I raised my hand in this. Um, I, I'm, I'm trusting in God alone for salvation. And then at the end of it, he said, is that the right answer? Told him, it's not about a right answer. It's about, do you love Jesus? Do you have affection towards Christ? Do you, have any, do you have any emotion? Do you have any ties to Jesus Christ? Or is it just simply hell insurance? Jesus calls us to relationship with him, not hell insurance. There are four that are missing from Jesus' list of, of, of commandments because these are the four that he is missing the most, even though I do believe he probably broke all of those other commandments before he even showed up to Jesus, seeing Jesus that day. But those four, that's what he's missing. Jesus has his number. He tells him he misses, he's, only, he's missing only one thing. It's a bit of a misdirection. We read that and we think, oh, maybe it's just a small thing. Maybe it's just like, you know, it's kind of like how people used to try to evangelize in the 90s and the age of abundance. You know, we would tell you like a yuppie, you know, you got the car, you got the kids, you got the, you got the wife, you're just missing one thing, and that's Jesus, like it's an add-on. That's ridiculous. If you miss this one thing, you've missed everything. Jesus says you're missing one thing. And sometimes we think maybe it's a small cosmetic thing. No, it's everything. He doesn't love God more than his money than his station, than his own prestige. You know, it's like if you and I were going scuba diving, and I were to tell you, you're only missing one thing, don't worry about it, it's your oxygen tank. Or we're going skydiving, you are all ready to skydive, you're missing one thing, it's your parachute. You'll be fine, though. <laughs> Verse 21, it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. It's true. Even though after Jesus is done talking with him, he leaves in sorrow. I believe if you were to act this out, film it, people would say that's not very Christ-like. Because people don't understand Christ and they don't understand love. It is not loving. It is not, it's not loving to tell people sin is not sin. In fact, it's probably one of the most hateful things we can do. Because what that says is that I'd rather you face the wrath of a holy God than for me to face your wrath. I would rather you burn in hell than to make this situation somewhat socially awkward. Jesus loved him, and then he told him what he must do, which caused him to weep. We confuse nice with actual love. We will even accuse someone of being unchristlike when they literally quote the words of Jesus. It's because, honestly, there's a bit of our sinful nature that only cares about our own comfort and good name and not God's glory or salvation of sinners. A good example of this, and I really wouldn't bring this up, but uh, another pastor who has a much bigger platform decided to say that this was a great example of how to, how to contextualize Christianity in our modern day and age. 
and that is uh, the dialogue between uh, Stephen Colbert and Dua Lip Lupa, Lipa. I don't know if I'm saying her name correct. Um, she was on his show, The Late Night Show, or whatever it's called with Colbert. I, don't, I can't remember. And she asked him a very important question. She asked him, what happens, she knew he was a man of faith, so what happens if your faith conflicts with your comedy? What happens at that point? A well-known pastor, author, praised Colbert for his response. Basically, his response was this, that being a believer, being a Catholic in his case, what meant is that he sees everything through the light of eternity, which means even terrible things that happen, he can see them through the light of eternity, and there's some humor in that. What happens when she stands before a loving God? And she says, Oh, no, no, I heard the gospel, Lord. It's that I can laugh at the hard times in my life. It's not the gospel, and it's not, it's not loving. Loving would have been to say, there's always a conflict. There's always other gods who want to supplant my Lord and Savior. But because I love him so much, they don't win. Easy, simple, or a million other things that you could have said that would have actually planted the seed of the gospel in somebody's life. But when you fear them more than you fear God, you get an answer like that. Now, I don't even know if Stephen Colbert is saved or not. And maybe that's too hard on him. He is not a pastor. In fact, pastors who have been faced with other rich young rulers have said much worse things than that. Some have even said, no, no, sin's not even a thing. It's a really sad thing when we want the praise of the rich young ruler more than we want the praise of the Savior. This man has other gods, and Jesus' request reveals this man has broken the first commandment. Now, you wouldn't have thought so. I wouldn't have thought so. I mean, this man doesn't worship Baal. He doesn't worship Moloch. He's a guy who he's very prominent in his, in, his, uh, in his culture. In fact, a rich young ruler in Israel probably would have been a ruler of a synagogue, like a leader in the church. You and I seeing him would not have been like, well, this guy is definitely an idol worshiper. But not all idols have names like Baal or Moloch or Zeus or Thor. No, the prime deity of the world's pantheon are these. Money, comfort, status, friends, and moralistic righteousness. For many people, their children are even a rival God. For how many people change their thoughts on what God, who God is and what God says when their child sins? I want to point out that another pastor I know had said that, so not me. Don't get it. I'm just kidding. I am saying that, and it's unfortunately true. So we get to point three, verses 24 through 27. It's the big question the disciples say have. Who then can be saved? See, we read this and we think maybe the big issue is that this guy has a lot of money, so he's a hypocrite and everything like that. But you know what their eyes see? They see a man in the prime of God's blessing. And they believe that material gain was godliness. So this guy is more righteous than anybody they know. Not to mention he's a church leader. He's young. This guy is blessed by God. He must be doing things right. For Jesus to say, even a guy like that, it's easier to go through the eye of a needle with a camel than for this guy to be saved. Who can be saved? Who can be saved? To the disciples, they were perplexed and confused at how even this guy couldn't make, make the cut. They are operating, operating under a works righteous system in a conditional 
in a, in, a, in a way of gaining God's favor by doing things, but many still are. There's a great temptation to make the kingdom of God a kingdom of me. A kingdom of me, because you know, in a kingdom, the king decides who's in the kingdom. We should stop, we should stop trying to fill that role. It's not vacant. Christ has very difficult words here. There are at least three statements in this story made by Christ that people, even Christians today, supposed Christians today, will completely disagree with and don't believe. Here's the first one we've already went through. No one is good except God alone. Many people will be like, well, what about, what about Buddha? What about all these other people? In fact, I know of a pastor who met with the Dalai Lama and he called him your holiness. Without Christ, the Dalai Lama goes to hell. Don't pretend you are loving the man by, by, by placating to him. Here's the second one. How difficult is, is it to enter the kingdom of God? Some translations, how difficult it is for, a rich, for somebody with riches to enter the kingdom of God. Many will disagree with that. No, it's easy. It's easy. It's easy. It's easy. Christ has paid the way. There's nothing more harder, more difficult than that. It's easy on our end because we have to accept, like the Israelites, to walk out of slavery. But don't confuse that with something that is easy. Only God alone can do that. And here's the third one. With man, it is impossible. The words of Christ seem harsh. They seem hard to the disciples who, after seeing this incredibly moral, rich, young ruler walking away in sorrow, ask, who then can be saved? This won't be the only time Jesus makes mention of the kingdom of God being an exclusive kingdom. He will give parables about people coming to the table without wedding clothes and being thrown out. He will say the way to heaven is a narrow path, but the way to hell is a broad highway. We tend to shake our fist at God and accuse him and say, why do you save some and not others? But if you would understand the words, I am the Lord your God, you shall, and how no one does, you'd be very amazed at how God saves any at all. Because he is the God of the impossible, that is how. Verse 27 puts it all together. You can't be rich enough to please God. You can't be moral enough to gain eternal life. You aren't. You are completely incapable of saving yourself. This is impossible with you, but with God, all things are possible. Can I just say very briefly, it's not in my notes, how incredibly wrong it is to take that out of context for wanting to finish the last mile of a, a marathon? How we demean that by trying to make that as something like, well, I didn't study for this test, but with God, all things are possible. When it's talking about salvation itself, that there's no other way for salvation. And we take God's glory away by making this some kind of self-help guru thing about always looking on the bright side of your life nonsense. Well, with God, all things are possible, including this sinner to be saved. God will not be replaced. His Holy Spirit will bother you until you remove the idols in your life. Dear believer, G.K. Chesterton said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. The first commandment is the first commandment for a reason. All other commands and all other sayings flow from this one thing, that God alone is to be worshipped. This is the first commandment for a reason. All the rest will flow from this. The commandments are there to remind you, you cannot be good on your own. 
and you can't keep the commandments on your own. But in Christ you are not, but in Christ you are free to live for righteousness because before Christ you couldn't. You could try to keep the commands, but because of your own unrighteous attitudes, they were like filthy rags to God. But if you are a believer today, you know what the Holy Spirit does? He filters out all of our wickedness so that our sacrifices are pleasing to God. He reveals, he chisels away every bit of us that is not like Christ. That's one of the actions of the Holy Spirit in our life today. Christian, you still break the first commandment. You still break the first commandment. Every time you let something in your life that causes your affection towards Christ to lessen, you've broken the first commandment. As a pastor, I'm constantly thinking to myself, I'm constantly praying to God, do not let the ministry become a God in my life. God showed this, God um, revealed this early on in my ministry. Me and Becca, our first call, it, it, didn't, it didn't end the way we were hoping it would end. And I remember I had to go back to Target, and I'm, I'm kind of laughing at myself today. I didn't realize I'm, I'm dressed to do a shift at Target. <laughs> this is not the intention, but it will go, it, it's a good example uh, of what I'm talking about here. Is sometimes we get addicted to the way people see us, and that becomes our God as well. And we're so afraid of losing the influence that we cling on to that. And unfortunately, this happens a lot in ministry. And there are so many people who call themselves ministers of God who in eternity will be in hell because they love the work of the Lord more than the Lord of the work. And they were unwilling to let go of the influence and everything else. And they wanted to cling on to this. So anyway... It didn't go well, and I had, to go, I, had to go, I had to go to Target in the intermediate time. And I remember telling my friends in the ministry, I told them, I, I've got to go back to Target, and I don't want to go back to Target. God is good, though, because I did, I did probably more ministry at Target than I did in the church. Because no matter where we're at, God has, God has so many things for us if we would just stop and look around. So many hurting people around us to love, to bind up, and that we don't need a title by our name to do so. We still break the first commandment when anything in our life rivals our affection towards Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that if you love your father and mother, husband, wife, children, more than him, you are not worthy of him. That's a hard... That's not a statement that put, that you get on a mug, Right? Because people, you know, people get that saying and they're like, well, no, I really want to, I, mean, I thought it was all about family values here. You know something? We said that for a number of years and Satan's like, well, if you think it's that, I'm going to attack you there. So many families have fallen away from Christ because Junior has decided he's going to live a life contrary to God's design. And so they decide, well, no, we're not going to do this. We'll go to a church that's going to accommodate our sins. But of course, the Lord knew this. He said in the last days, there will be lovers of men. They will, they will accumulate themselves a number of teachers who will tickle their ears. Live in freedom. If you are not living the abundant life God has called you to live, maybe it's because you have other gods in your life who need to be thrown out, broken to pieces, and swept away. Worship team, would you please come up for our last song? Maybe you don't actually know what those are. And you need the Holy Spirit 
to do what Jesus did in the life of the young ruler and point it out in your life. In our final song, our time to respond to the work of the Holy Spirit through his message today, that's the thing that we have to ask ourselves even daily. God, is there anything in my life that is causing my affections to lessen towards you? Is there a rival God? I'm excited for this series. Spoiler for next week, it's going to be a, somewhat of a difficult one because the second commandment is broken more, more in so many ways and people make all kinds of justifications for it. Next week, there won't be justifications. But you know something? This is all for our good and God's glory. Because when you live, when you live according to God's design, when you live according to the freedom that God has given you, you live in greater joy. You live in greater peace. You live in freedom instead of being burdened again by another yoke of slavery. I'm excited for this because so many people of God's people live in self-imposed slavery and God wants to loosen that up. God wants to free us from every sin that so easily entangles. Would you please join us in our final song? Mm -hmm.